Well, happy Culture Cast Day and happy Tuesday, Melinda. Welcome. Hi. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. Oh my gosh, so good to see you. Um, I'm so excited to have you join us in the month of June. I know I've been saying this every time I've been on, but happy Pride Month, everybody. Um, I, I know. I think I told you this as you and I were getting ready for this call. So many people have reached out and we're just so excited about A, um, acknowledging and celebrating Pride Month and our LGBTQIA plus friends, as well as all of our diverse friends. And the fact that we have an expert on the line here to talk about how you can be an ally. And I know everyone has probably looked at your background. Um, there's so much to talk about, including the book that you wrote, which was written during the pandemic. And so how you can be an ally and how you can take a strong, um, take actions to make a stronger, happier workplace. And I think Melinda, thank you for inviting me. I was most recently on your podcast on how to lead with empathy and allyship. So there's a lot going on that we're gonna dive into. And for everyone, if this is your first time viewing on CultureCast, a couple of things there, I know for those on LinkedIn, come on in and say hi in the comments and we'd love to you know, see what your comments are and feel free to post any ideas or questions that we can respond to. And then secondly, the reason why we're calling it a culture cast, it's pretty simple. I think it's really about how can we as leaders in a community actually lead the way in our actions in creating environments where others can thrive. So not only you as a leader and a human being in your community, whether it's at work or at home and you know in the communities that you're a part of, but how can you create a culture where people can thrive? And so, I'm going to toss it back to you, Melinda, before we get into culture and allyship. I really just want to jump into who is Melinda? I mean, you've got this mm. amazing, um, very diverse background. And I guess, you know, leading up to this expertise that you've now amassed and created into a book, like, I'd love to hear your journey. What was it in your lifetime, like Melinda, mm. that kind of led you down this path? Hmm. I have always been focused on, since I was young, really young, focused on creating positive change in the world. And I think when I was, when I was really young, I was like, oh, the only way you can create positive change in the world is to be a surgeon and save people's lives. And then um, in high school, um, I, uh, yeah, I, I, that was where I really kind of started to see that I really wanted to create social impact and social change, social justice, and uh, grew up in Oakland and then in South Seattle. And I didn't realize at the time, but I grew up in very diverse neighborhoods that were unusual. Um, I was uh, in a majority minority high school and, um, and my friends were from all different cultural identities and backgrounds. And, uh, and that really shaped me in ways that I didn't know until much later. Um, and, and so I started out, I would say I started out in the film industry. First, I went to art school um, and uh, also got a degree in cultural anthropology and then, um, and then went to film school at USC and, and worked in the film industry for about 10 years. And my goal there was to create social impact using the power of storytelling. 
And yeah. so I did that for 10, about 10 years, worked in, in LA in the film industry for about 10 years. And then I uh, moved uh, for a year. I did kind of a reset. It's a hard life working in the film industry. Yeah, so I bet. I did a, yeah, it's a, at least 12 hour days, six to seven days a week. And I, it took a, a toll on my body. I, um, I got pretty sick. And so I took a year reset, lived um, in north of San Francisco, about an hour and a half in a tiny little town called Geyserville on a vineyard and kind of reset oh. physically. Yeah. And kind of also reset what I wanted to do with my career and ended up moving from there just back to Seattle where, um, most of where I grew up. I grew up mostly in Seattle. And I started working on using that power of storytelling to create behavior change and um, worked with large NGOs and uh, Fortune 500 companies on social impact programs working to create change. And eventually, skip over several years, yeah. ended up working um, as a an executive working marketing and culture and also working with the nation's largest healthcare systems. So I was using technology, storytelling, behavior change strategies to reduce their energy, their waste and their water use. And there I was in a very non-inclusive environment. Oh boy. Um, yeah, I, I experienced harassment and bullying and also the day-to-day -day biases and microaggressions. And I didn't know what it was at first. It took me a while. I got into a pretty deep, dark place of like, I've been successful doing everything yeah. I've done over the years. And then suddenly here I am and I don't feel successful. What's going on? What's wrong with me? And then I started doing some research around toxic workplace culture microaggressions and realized that... It wasn't me. It was the culture around me that wasn't created for me. I was the only woman on a leadership team of 19. Oh, wow. And just it just wasn't created for me there. The, the culture wasn't created for me. And nobody made space for me in that culture. And so I worked to create change. I started looking at the numbers and realized I wasn't alone. We had high turnover rates for women and people of color and started working to create change in that company. And I realized I wanted to do more than create change in that one company. Then, and so I left my job as an executive and started my company now with my 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 then boyfriend and now husband yeah. Wayne Sutton um, to really address diversity, equity, and inclusion across the tech industry initially, and then we've expanded beyond that. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, my company Impovia, which was is formerly Change Catalyst, we work to create change around diversity, equity, inclusion, and sustainability, um, focus on learning and development. So a lot of training, e-learning, and coaching, executive coaching. Well, amazing. I mean, there's so much to unpack from your background. I think it's really interesting, you like having an acknowledgement of how you grew up, you know, the neighborhoods where you grew up, and even if it was majority minority high school, and how you didn't know it then, but now reflecting back on your experiences, kind of understanding the diversity of being part of a community like that. Um, and I hear you too. I mean, just reflecting on being a storyteller, I get that you've been in the film industry for the first 10 years. And thank you for saying that. I know that there's a couple of people who um, are online who I know have just worked their tails, right? In the film industry. And to your point, it's not just 12 hours a day. It could be 24 seven until something gets out the door. And I've seen the toll that it takes mentally, physically on my friends when they don't take that time off 
or acknowledge that there's some self-care and they're on to the next. And so I can't imagine for 10 years, I think you and I were kind of in the same industries. I worked in entertainment for six years, but worked all across different industries and kind of understand that. But then I think your observation kind of moving into this corporate world and being um, the, a single female amongst many males, et cetera. And back then you're kind of like, I've been successful doing what I'm doing. Now I'm in this, I'll just use the word corporate environment. And, you know, I hear you. I think about um, microaggressions until there was a label and people started talking about it and defining what it is to be, you know, to experience a microaggression. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's happened my entire career, at least early, early on. You know, and I think we might be, you know, in the same generation, just kind of growing up with that instead of, I think corporate America is so different today. Um, Back in the day, it used to be, here's the hierarchy, here's the way, right? And here's how everyone behaves. Like, here's the success profile, which then was super homogeneous, you know, in terms of like, everyone looked the same, acted the same, pretty much. Um, and if not, they strove to, right? Like it's kind of how you dress, how you talk, et cetera. So it's interesting that you say that. You yeah, know? you think that there's still a lot of companies that are like that, unfortunately. Actually, you're right. I, I agree today. There are still so many companies that are like that. I think the difference is, um, you know, there's this next generation or this new generation of, you know, our future leaders, right? So workers who have entered the workforce, which are the most diverse ever, at least I'm talking specifically in the US. Mm-hmm. And I think um, not knowing terminology, not like I was growing up, I'm like, oh, you know, I was taught how to assimilate. If I joined a company, here's what it takes to be successful, right? And I hear you when you're not feeling successful. Now, I think there's language around, um, which what we're going to dive into, culture and allyship and what it means to have an inclusive um, organization and a place where people feel like they belong or they at least can see themselves. And so I think that's the difference today. I think what's harder could be, you're right, I, I there's so much work for Impovia, you know, beyond tech. <laughs> Again, it's across industries around educating leaders specifically and then also helping others, but educating leaders on what it means to create an environment where people can thrive, you know, and what it looks looks like to be a leader. And then I think on the flip side, the the book that you wrote, you know, I think people also want to be part of change. They just don't know how. And so yeah. this whole thing on allyship, I think, is huge. So, I mean, let's dive in. First of all, let's talk about how you view culture. If you were to define it, how would you define culture? And then let's get into allyship. Hmm. Ooh, cult- I, are we talking about workplace culture or just culture in general? Culture in general, whatever culture your definition is. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's multiple components of culture. There is historical background and, um, and, and I think that's what we often forget. Like when we talk, even when we talk about American culture, like there's yeah. this historical background that's really important piece of, of the culture. And the culture is made up of all different aspects of all different cultures combined yeah. to create this kind of um, broader culture, whether you're talking about workplace culture, you're talking about friend culture, you're talking about uh, the 
your national culture as well. You have all of these different components, all these different cultures that combine to create the broader culture as well. And that's that's really the, the key is to create spaces, safe, psychologically safe spaces for people to really bring their culture into the yes. culture to be who they are authentically within the broader culture and help create that culture together. I, I love the way you define it. And actually, I'm not surprised because you did study as a cultural anthropologist. I mean, I think that, that alone, I, I mean, understanding um, the sociology and like getting in deep. And I think I'm not shocked that it's led you to this pathway to where you are right now. Um, mm. But going into recognizing that people actually bring their own culture, right? Everyone, you know, you could have similar races or diverse races, but even within families and within how people grow up, that's the culture that they're used to. And what I love your, what you're saying is like, it all comes together, whether you're at work or you're in your community or your friend culture, it's the blending of all of that. And then how that all um, creates an environment on how we behave together. And I love that you said too, that hopefully it's in a way where people can still be authentic to who they are and um, feel like they're in a psychologically safe environment where they feel supported. I like using the words seen and heard, which is a little different than being supported. Um, mm -hmm. And so I love that. It's that combination. And, you know, when I talk about culture, you're right. I think it's everything. I think work, especially now, I think that's what's different with corporations, understanding that there is this living, breathing organism, that it's not like, hey, let's all rally and create a project around culture. Yeah. I think it's acknowledging what it is. And um, I mean, that's, it's, it, it's also a living being that I think everyone has a part in shaping and, and creating and thriving, right? Um, and then, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say, I was gonna interject and say something very similar um, that it's not static. Culture is constantly evolving. All cultures are constantly evolving. And as language is evolving and terminology is evolving and concepts about who we are and our own identities evolve, yeah. so does the culture. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. And I think that's why I think other ways people define culture too is, hey, what's on trend right now? What is culture right now and what's happening or what's at the forefront? If you think how people approach it mainstream. But I do want to kind of jump into allyship. And, you know, I think it's quite a feat that here you are, you're running this company. It's not easy, you know, being a change catalyst. And now and that was your company name now in Povia, and then you decide to write this book on allyship during COVID. So mm -hmm. let's talk about what led you to that process. And then let's also get into how would you define allyship? Sure. Um, and actually, I, I signed the contract for my book before the pandemic started. So I didn't oh. decide to do it. Okay. It happened at the same time. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. Oh, well, let me let me define allyship first. Yeah. Allyship is empathy in action. It's really taking the time to learn about people's unique identities and cultures and language and ways that we might be unintentionally harming each other, showing empathy for each other. Right. Not just having empathy, but showing empathy. Yeah. Ultimately taking action and support. Yeah. So learning, showing empathy, taking action all together um, encompasses allyship. 
Yeah, I, I love that piece, that active piece of not only learning, but actually showing it, like showing what empathy. And, and I think learning has to go hand in hand with it, right? It's like being open to actually beginning to understand different cultures, different people, et cetera. So yeah. I hear you on that. I think I'm glad you defined it. Um, I oftentimes in like mentor circles that I'm a part of, I get a lot of questions around what's allyship versus mentorship versus sponsorship. What does that mean? In this context, as it relates to culture, it is about, I'm hearing you say, it is about being open to learning about other people and other backgrounds mm -hmm. and, um, you know, what makes them unique and showing that you're, you know, showing that you care, right? Like mm -hmm. showing that you care to understand, I guess yeah. I would say that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and mentorship and sponsorship are both a part acts of allyship in my, in my um, view, they're more acts of advocacy within the, the broader scope of allyship. And, and for those that are like, well, what's the difference between mentorship yeah. and sponsorship? Mentorship is when you're a mentor with, for somebody, you are helping them develop their ski skills and understanding to grow in their career. And then a sponsor is somebody who recognizes they may already have those skills and really have that understanding, but they need doors open up to them. They need yes. opportunities interrupted. And so a sponsor uses your power and your influence to open doors, open new opportunities for somebody, whether that is recommending them for or for a job or a new opportunity, or that is talking with them when they are about them when they aren't even in the room, that is amplifying their voice. All of those things yes. go together to make up sponsorship. It's usually using your own clout to for somebody else's game. Yeah, I'm glad that you define that. And I think there is kind of a pathway where it's easy access to jump into allyship. And then I think in any case, too, to take on a formal role of mentoring, and this doesn't, I mean, I, I've got, and I hate using the word reverse mentoring, I'll just say mentoring, but, you know, I, I um, meet with kids these days, right, when I think about teenagers yeah. or, you know, this Gen Z just to understand, hey, how do they see the world? How are they experiencing the workplace? To me, that's mentoring because I'm learning something that I know I need to know that I, you know, because I didn't grow up that way. I've and from a different decade. And I agree with you. Um, and so it's about develop helping someone develop and um, get experiences that they need to grow in their career or grow in the pathway of what they're choosing to do. And I agree with you too on sponsorship. It's actually having someone's back and when they're not in the room, how are you looking out for them? In, in that primarily around opportunities or opportunities to grow, like how are you sponsoring that person? Um, and opening doors or advocating for them when they can't be there for themselves. So I think that's great. So let's let's go into allyship. So you signed this contract, and I know no one knew the pandemic was going to happen. And here you are, like now writing the book, right? So why write the book in the first place? Then, like, what was it that drove you to that? Starting back a little bit further, when we started doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work we found pretty quickly that there were just in organizations, there were one or two people focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, trying to create whole sh systems and culture shifts. Right. Yes. And you can't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to create a whole, create change in an organization where only a couple of people are working to create that change. It really takes all of us working together. I agree. And all of us are a part of the culture as we are, as we defined it. Right. And so all of us have a role to play in changing that culture, allowing 
space for new people to come into that culture, creating the systems and processes that are more equitable for people across different identities within that culture, right? And so allyship is essential to creating that change. Each one of us has the power to create change and the responsibility to create change within ourselves internally and also externally. And so I did a TED talk in 2018. I was asked to do a, a talk on a different subject. And I said, you know what? I have this, this platform where yeah. I have potential to reach what I thought was a million people. It's been several million at this point. Yeah. I, 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 what am I going to use it for? And so I pushed back and I said, I want to talk about allyship. And they said, huh. And I said, no, no, I want to talk about allyship. And so I, I worked that in and, and did a talk on allyship. And then the book came um, a little bit later. And basically, I've seen so many people that want to do something. Yeah. What to do. A lot of people want to learn more. They want to, um, and then they want to take action. They don't know what to do. They want to interrupt microaggressions, but they don't know how to do it. They don't know what scripts. So I you know, created scripts for people within my book so that you can, you know, practice those scripts, make them your own. When a microaggression happens in front of you, you now have those scripts and you can take action, right? So it's it was is seeing so many different people wanting to do something, wanting to mm -hmm. do the right thing, wanting to be a good human and not knowing what to do. That's what the, who the book is for. Oh, that's amazing. And I think you, what you do in the book too, and, and if you jump to your website to look at, you know, the overview of your book, there are, I think you outline kind of seven key action steps. And I know when talking about your book, I, I'll cut to the chase. We always talk about this towards the end of a podcast, like, all right, well, what does that mean? So I agree with you. So culture and diversity, equity, and inclusion, most companies, right, they hire one person and that person maybe hires another person. And then there's this huge responsibility um, for the DEI leader or whatever you call it in whatever organization to put together this DEI plan. And um, I agreed totally with you. I don't even know that it's about DEI. I think it more broadly is about the culture of the organization. And it is about recognizing the diversity of the experiences, the people, the backgrounds, what they bring into the organization. And I think everyone has a responsibility. So totally agree with you on that. And I hear you too, when there's not a specific, I guess, training, or people have, if this is new to them, other than being a good human being, Okay, how can you take it a next step further than being a human being than to be an ally? And so I'd love for you to give an overview of, all right, well, what does allyship and those high level kind of framework that you have on how to be an ally? Yeah, sure. So step one, learn, unlearn, relearn. There's things that we have learned through our entire lives that... Uh, maybe you're not so inclusive language that we use that maybe isn't so inclusive uh, ways of thinking about other people, not so inclusive necessarily. So sometimes we have to unlearn yeah. and relearn from different perspectives. The second, making sure we do no harm, understanding and correcting our biases. We all have biases and we need to recognize that we have them, understand what different biases are because naming them makes a big difference. Really. Yeah what those are so that you can interrupt them in yourself. Um, and then eventually you want to interrupt them when you see them as well. Um, the third is to recognize and overcome microaggressions. Microaggressions are the way that 
biases can come out through our words and actions and yeah. people, right? So we want to reduce, we want to eliminate eventually those microaggressions, but really, and again, understanding what microaggressions that are out there within different names for them, the different concepts, and then doing that internal work to overcome them. And then fourth is to advocate for people. We talked about that a little yeah. bit, leadership, sponsorship, being somebody's champion. Then five is to stand up for what's right and interrupt the microaggressions, interrupt the biases when you see them. So I have scripts again and, and a framework for doing that effectively in different ways and different scenarios, um, depending on what those different ways, yeah. you might you might interrupt a little bit differently. Lead the change is number five, number six. Um, so you're owning that there is this system and yeah. change that needs to happen and doing your work to help change that. And five, seven is to transform your organization, transform your industry, transform society. So that might be modeling your own work and sharing that with other people. That might be bringing in more allies. That might be really creating systemic change across your industry as well and advocating for that change. That's great. I love how you outline the steps in the seven areas. And it feels like the first steps are really about self-awareness more than anything, right? So it's the work that you the individual, me as the individual needs to do with myself to just get clear, you know, about, you know, my ability to be open to learn and unlearn. I love that you say that, mm -hmm. but then also to understand and recognize biases, right? I think there's like a huge self-awareness piece that um, it doesn't just start with jump in there and go, you know, be a hero and just say, I'm in for everything. It is about understanding who you are, getting clear about, um, I always say this, but clear about who you are, what you stand for, you know, what's your value set? How did you get there? And acknowledging that, you know, and I, I remember going, growing up in my career, it's kind of like, well, why doesn't everyone think this way? Well, there's <laughs> a reason everyone's different. And so um, I love that you start with that as a starting point, there's a lot of self-work. And so in your book, are there um, ideas or tips on how people can explore that, right? So how do you learn unlearn? And when do you recognize that, you know, you're going back into old behaviors versus trying new behaviors? Because I think for you, it's this whole, you know, you're a behavior change artist as well, mm -hmm. you know, being a um, cultural anthropologist. So tell me about that. Like, is there a place in the book that people can learn about that? Like creating self-awareness? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think one of the things you can think about and kind of hold with you as you walk through the world and um, your workplace is, is are you centering your own experience as normal? Or are you decentering mm. experience as normal, right? When, you, when we center our own experience as normal, then we see other people as not normal. We create these outgroups. We create these yeah. like, of looking at people differently. And um, why don't they talk like me? Why don't they look like me? Why don't they act like me? Rather than, oh, everybody is different. Everybody is unique. That's a very cultural anthropology yeah. kind of concept where every, every culture is relative, right? Every person is relative and brings something new, a culture add versus a culture fit into, you know, your culture. And so, um, and then the other thing is to really look at where you're consuming information, where you're consuming stories, who is telling the stories that you're consuming, you know, when you're watching Netflix, 
are you watching Netflix about shows that are of people like you all the time? Who's mm. shows, right? What, who's writing the books that you're reading? Who's writing the articles that you're reading? And really intentionally expand that because that's going to shape how you see the world differently. Uh, when you get the different different aspects, different uh, identities, different experiences, showing you different parts of the world and culture and, and identity it makes a big difference. Yeah. yeah. So seeking oh out knowledge is really essential to allyship. Seeking out different perspectives is essential to allyship. I, I love how practical that is. First of all, I love the practical. Are you centering... Um, the world based on your view or are you centering it based on how others are experiencing their life, right? So like, mm -hmm. you're right. I think about young Marisa going, well, why doesn't, why don't people think about it this way? Well, yeah, because everyone's different. So I love that easy tip. Like to always be going through the world, trying to understand people, you know, where they're at and kind of how they view the world that could be very different from yours. But this very practical piece that you said, it's like, and watch where you were gaining knowledge and consuming information. I agree with you. You know, I think there's what I love about pop culture, you know, I'll use the word culture again, is that, um, you know, yes, I nerd out and I love reading books. I love reading studies around culture and people and what's the latest that everyone who we kind of lean on is say, okay, what's the latest and greatest this quarter on people. But then I also learn a lot too. I, you know, when you say, be careful what you're watching on Netflix, um, because are you watching things that are people that are just like you? And I think what's interesting about Netflix is that, um, especially during the pandemic, because we all had that little luxury of learning how to binge if we didn't already on Netflix, <laughs> right? You know, because like, I'm like, Netflix, Netflix, what? What are you talking about? Like, I would watch a show, but there's a way that you can actually charge through and go on to the next one and just not sleep and watch it. But here's what I love about what you're saying. So at Netflix, with all the content that they were creating over the pandemic, there were a lot of global shows, right? So mm -hmm. I'm a US citizen, I'm sitting here watching US Netflix. But then there's all these global shows that are either drama, documentary, um, reality, which is a dramatic documentary, like on people's lives. And it's from other cultures and it's um, in other parts of the world where then, you know, there's English that's being dubbed to kind of understand that. I think that kind of opened up a window. I know for me personally, but I think about, oh, and then, you know, when I've traveled different parts of the world, I'm thinking, okay, I caught this show and I know not everything you watch is real, but it's acknowledging at least a part of it is like, well, okay, here's what I saw. And then to your point, what are you listening to? What podcasts, what are you reading? And that it's not just coming from the same cast of characters who all think and act the same, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I, I would say within all of that, you have to watch the algorithms. Algorithms are biased towards showing you more things that you've already been watching, that, that you like what you've been watching, right? So you have to go deeper into the search of Netflix. You have to go, if you've been watching and using Netflix for a while and you haven't really been um, seeing these shows from other parts of the world, for example, they're there, but you might have to dig a little bit deeper because the algorithm is going to show you things just like what you've been already watching. Oh, right? I agree with you because it's like, because you've watched this, now you can watch this. Exactly. And I think it's, yeah, yeah, it's just my curiosity. Um, and I've always been a curious person. I just like 
tapping on random tiles to go, well, what's this show? You know, it might be something I would never watch. And I'll actually just click on it to start watching it just to understand what it is. And I, you find the most random things that way, yeah. which, you know, are enlightening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I love that those are great tips on how to create self-awareness, but then I'm going to go all the way to the other end. You know, here you are. Okay. You're creating self-awareness. You're creating your own understanding, your own biases, knowing what microaggressions are, naming them, you know, and then also being a, a change agent, like getting out there and changing. But then how do you change a community? There's a lot of self-change that we're talking about. How does this happen then? Um, as a group, like, mm -hmm. great, come and change your organization or your culture. Like, how how do, can someone start that? It depends a little bit on your role. Yeah. Right? So, and what you can change. So sometimes, and, and we we'll have this conversation a lot where people ask, "Well, I don't. I'm not a leader. What can mm -hmm. I do? How can I change the whole culture? How can I change the whole, the whole system?" Well, you can model the change. So you really show your own learning process, um, uh, call people in versus calling them out and really share yeah. um, what biases um, you're seeing coming out in the decisions that your team makes. And um, you might call in your supervisor if, if they are unintentionally harming people through biases or microaggressions, call them in on the side and just say, you know, can, are you open to some feedback? Yeah. And, you know, and then have, have a conversation with them, help them learn and grow, right? Calling people in. Um, if you're a leader that is creating a culture on your team at the least where you're learning and unlearning yeah. together, where you're doing that, that work together, checking in on your biases together. When you, when you have a new project, when you have a new, um, when you're interviewing a new person, you're checking in on your biases before, during and after. Right. Um, and you're looking and you look for where there might be inequities in what you're doing, yeah. you know, are, are you giving the same types of feedback to everybody in your performance reviews? Because the research shows that women and people of color don't get that quality feedback and that affects everybody's career. Or when you're doing calibration and you're um, giving people promotions, when you're giving people raises, when you're hiring people for the first time, are you giving them equitable salaries and co other compensation, right? Um, because there's huge inequities that we still find, even though technically it's illegal, there's still huge inequities yeah. that we see, right? And as somebody who has the power there, it's your role to change that. And then as a leader, you should be also advocating up as well, really working to create change with your colleagues across the whole system and culture as well. And that might look like, you know, just taking one piece at a time. And yeah. like, you know what? I'm noticing on our team that our performance review system was not very equitable. So we did some things here to change it and we piloted it and hey, look what happened. Hey, you all, I think we should look at this at, as a culture as a whole. Right. Yeah, I, 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 I love that. Yeah, I, I love that you broke it down, too, because some people say, well, I just go and do my job. Right? It's like, and I have other team members, and I love it. It's about modeling the behavior. But then if there is something that they're experiencing or observing directly, that they have the courage to call that out and have that conversation one-on-one -on -one with the other human being where they've experienced, 
an inequity and inconsistency, however you want to call it. But then from a leadership standpoint, and you said this earlier, and I do want to bring this back up, you know, as a leader, I love, first of all, that you addressed, are you acknowledging biases and how that translates to potential inequities during performance feedback time, right? Mm -hmm. If you give everyone the same feedback, um, or you tend to give certain feedback, you know, I know you've probably heard this and I don't want to assume, but I think about one, one of my career, early career days and um, I was sitting with my manager and I was asking for feedback on a project and actually raised my hand to go do something else. And he said something like, you know, Marisa, you're just being too ambitious, right? You shouldn't, you should just be happy with this project. And then if another one comes along and then I kid you not, being a human resources professional, at least having grown up that way, on a side note, like here he is talking about another peer of mine in another part of the organization, like, look at him go, he's so ambitious. And I'm thinking, all right, so how are you giving me that feedback to not be that? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a real specific, but I think it, it is about like, how are you um, taking the time to be intentional about the feedback and the information that you are sharing and giving people. And then more specifically, I love it when you're looking at, all right, inequities of pay and um, access to promotions or considerations for promotions. But then going back to this notion of culture ad versus culture fit. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot a leader can be doing. I would love for you to say more around what you mean by culture ad versus culture fit, because I think that's something that leaders can be at proactive in driving. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to say something a little bit more yeah. about feedback too, I think if you think about feedback as uh, the skills and knowledge, so not qualities, not personality, yes. skills and knowledge, right? That can go a long way in, in really rethinking how you're giving feedback to different people. So it's not you're, you're aggressive, you're, um, you're too assertive. It is what do you need to do your job even better or move into the next um, phase of your job, right? I, I love that. No, thank you for saying that because oftentimes I've experienced feedback as, okay, that's your judgment, but I actually want to understand what actions, what specifically skills and knowledge, behaviors that I can gain, do differently, et cetera. You know, or if you're coaching somebody, what they can be focusing on to then mm -hmm. make progress. So I love that yeah, you said that. Exactly. And I, I, I lost your question. Oh, the, the other one is like, say more about what you mean by culture ad versus culture fit. Because I hear that all the time, like, oh, are they a culture fit? You know, and that's also, um, I'll, I'll let you opine on, yeah. on why you said culture ad versus fit. Yeah. So um, when you think of culture fit, it's a very static way of looking at culture. Right. Yes. It's not how we defined it. It's that this is the culture. Somebody has to fit into it. Assimilate is the word you use for yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. um, versus culture add. They can be who they are. They're adding to the culture and the culture is transforming at the same time. Right. Yeah. And that's where, that's where you get the power of diversity, the power of the, you know, the, the, the data that we all know at this point, I think, is that diverse and inclusive teams are more productive, more profitable, more innovative. Right. right? But you only get that if you allow people to be their authentic selves. 
right? Their culture ad. And, and so when you're looking at hiring, instead of looking at, well, we know that um, because of our current team has five graduates of Harvard, we want to yeah. somebody who's similar to them um, because they work really well together. And instead, let's look for somebody who is not that, who's yes. going to bring something new to our culture that we don't have here. That's going to allow us to expand our understanding of our of our uh, user base of in tech or whatever. Um, if you're in tech, look, it, it will um, fundamentally change how you understand your user base. The expertise um, might be coming from a very different place. And that's a yeah. good thing, right? You want those challenges. You want people to challenge each other, not always go in the same direction, because when you go in the same direction, you have the danger of having groupthink where everybody's right. thinking the same, everybody's going too fast, and you don't stop and ask questions. So we end yeah. up with, right now, AI that is racist, sexist, ableist, etc., because um, there weren't enough people designing those and totally a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's interesting. You bring that up and let's, I mean, AI is kind of the next question I want to go to, but let's go back to this whole notion of culture ad. And I, I love the idea of um, if you are responsible for supporting and leading a team of people and you have the opportunity to bring on yet another person, another talent onto your team that you consider someone who is very different, who will still have the skills and knowledge that you're asking for, but who is very different from the backgrounds that people already have on the team. And there is that piece where you bring them in. I think you said this earlier too, and create a space where they feel psychologically safe, that they can bring their authentic selves and fully contribute you know, to, to their knowledge, their ideas, et cetera. I think, it's what I've seen, again, from a human resources standpoint, is that leaders kind of follow this whole, okay, I need a, a diverse team. Got it. Uh, you know, I'm going to look for uh, a wide network of people. I'm going to choose someone who might be different. But then there's this whole, like, I'm going to use the word group think, like, well, here's the way we do things. And like that person who might have brought something from out of the box now feels like they can't even bring mm -hmm. this new idea because of you know, it's not a safe environment to express themselves or to bring that idea. How do you help leaders do that, right? So it, it is one thing to have a culture ad, but how do you make sure people are adding, right? How is that additive for them? Yeah, you have to create that psychological safety that really yeah. gets you there. Is, is, um, you need to ask yourself, are, are you creating an environment where people feel free to take risks? Yeah. Where we feel free to challenge each other, uh, constructively challenge each other, where you are opening yourself up to different perspectives before you make a decision, right? And if you're not, then the, some of the things to start doing are to, the first one is would be to start soliciting more opinions, start seeing who's talking and who's not talking in your mind. Yes. Um, there's often there's two or three people that dominate a conversation on a team, give other people airtime and space. And that might mean because you haven't had this environment before that you need to ask them, ask other people to share their ideas. You know, I, you know, I haven't heard from you in a while. Yes. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, and they may not be ready because um, you haven't created that space yeah. to share. So you might ask them, you know, um, if you're not ready now, I'd love to hear 
in the next conversation or or you on on the side one-on-one you say hey you know i've realized you that we haven't created space for you to really share your ideas and i want your ideas i value your expertise um um, can you share your idea about whatever this is in our next meeting yeah it gives them a chance it gives them opportunity um you might think about who is regularly having opportunities to lead whether that's leading a project yeah leading a leading a meeting and give more people opportunities to lead and step into that, that role often it's one or two people again, and um, you need to expand that and really model that um, for your team. Notice when there are biases and microaggressions coming up that are impacting people. Yeah. Make sure that you're, you know, there's, if there's interrupting women are three times more likely to be interrupted. Right. So notice that too, if you're women, if women on your team are not, Speaking up, it could be because they were being interrupted. It could be because they were interrupted for so long they stopped talking. Right. Right. So it's your job as a leader to notice those things and interrupt them. I love that. I mean, I love all of these practical tips too about just acknowledging that if people, maybe they contribute differently or they process differently and they they don't feel like, hey, on their feet, they can be as um, articulate as they want to be if people there's like the same two or three people. But um, in the right way, acknowledging, hey, we'd love to hear from you or what do you think? And if it's not happening in the meeting, I agree with you on the side, just having those conversations. And if I think back to great managers in my own career, you know, where I think I, you know, being the youngest in the room or new to the company, et cetera, and learning where I felt like, well, I have a point of view, but should I say something? Should I not? You know, and I remember one of my first managers out of undergrad, his name was Cliff Tipton. And he pulled me aside. He was just this happy-go-lucky dude. He was just the nicest man. And he just kind of said, you know, when you said something, you know, in this meeting that we had, that really made us think, think about, we should be thinking about something else. Like he was just like, and when you do say something, it really changes the conversation in a good way for the team. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to speak up more, right? Like bring those ideas in the conversation, right? And I know you can sh- share them with me on the side. So I think things like that as leaders to encourage, I think that's really important to do that. Um, and you just made me think about another idea. And I've done this with various teams and you know different degrees of my career. But when you do have a team, you know, as a leader, if there is a standing agenda, as a leader, people can rotate who's leading the meeting, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. And so, and it's interesting to see that um, I supported a team where, you know, especially during the pandemic, we would have these kind of group Zoom calls, you know, mm-hmm. a couple hundred people on the line. It was just really about A, keeping the community together. We were learning our way through um, the pandemic, but then B, it's a chance to give a business update. C, a chance for a part of the team just to give a quick update on, hey, here's what we're working on, right? Or bring in a guest speaker. And for a while, it was always me. Like, okay, I'm going to kick it off and I'm going to lead it. And then when I said to my my team, I'm like, hey, I think we'll just rotate alphabetically. Just choose the alphabet, first name or last name. And whoever's next, you know, whoever's next in the alphabet, this is your call and you're leading it. And so I think that's interesting because we learned so many ways to be better or different the next time because mm-hmm. someone else was kind of in charge, you know, or it's a safe way to do that. So I love that, that you're using that. Um, and I, I also think as a part of that, it's really important for people to build empathy 
and trust for one another. So you need to build those things as well. And that requires, especially when we're in remote and hybrid settings, it requires recreating water cool moments, right? Yes. It requires um, creating that space for people to talk about things that aren't work. <laughs> um, and whatever that is, like our, our team has a weekly meeting and there are only two rules. One rule is that everybody has a chance to speak. And the second is that we don't talk about work, right? And it's a, it's a really powerful experience, especially when you're doing weekly, right? You yeah. really get to know each other in a different way. And that empathy that we have for one another breaks down some of the barriers that we have around difference and allows us to see similarities where we didn't see similarities before. And also to value those differences that we have yeah. unique. And empathy is the gateway to trust. You have to have empathy in order to truly trust somebody. Oh yeah, and and so and you can't have um, you can't have people people will not take risks if they don't trust each other, right? So you need this empathy and trust in order to get there. Oh my gosh, I love that you keep bringing it back. Of course, this is your mantra and who you are, but it's also bringing empathy to the table. And I love that idea too of your weekly standups or your meetings where the two rules all everyone needs to have a say or say something, contribute. Mm -hmm. um, and then I love that it's not about work. Like you want to learn about each other. And I think it is a good way. Empathy does create trust. The more that people um, can understand and see people for who they are and where they're coming from, I think that that's critical. Mm -hmm. um, now let's talk about empathy and AI. I, I totally agree with you. I think it's fascinating learning about this whole Web3 world, AI, et cetera. And you're right, all the tools that have been developed, although it's now quickly evolving, weren't actually developed with diverse talent, right? Like a diverse skill set. Um, and I think you know, my question for you is, what role do you think humans play with AI? I think it's AI is going to be great. I mean, there's some great tools like ChatGPT, you know, I've played with Midjourney, which is all around designing, but there's an element of you still need a human to get in there and, you know, yeah. and uh, assess. And I'll use the word judge. I don't mean it that way, but like, go, oh, we're off on something. There's like stuff missing. So tell me what your thoughts are on AI and empathy. Yeah. I mean, AI amplifies all the biases and microaggressions and systemic inequities that we have put out into the universe, um, especially if it's learning from the internet, right? Yeah. Um, and yes, it amplifies all of the, the biases um, that are within whoever programmed the AI in the first place. And so, you know, you take it's, a, it's like a ripple effect. At the beginning, it looks like a small bias, but as AI starts to learn and grow about, oh. around that bias, they actually get more and more racist, more and more sexist. And yes. Racist, right? Um, and there is AI out there in the world that has been designed very methodically. I was just talking with um, Kieran Schneider from um, the CEO of, of Textio, um, and they yeah. have an algorithm, right, that they have um, built over many, many years with diverse folks um, on their team that um, is actively working against bias. So it can happen, it can be done. Um, it just needs to be used that model versus the model of some of the others where, um, uh, where we need diverse teams from the very beginning. I know that my Google and, um, and Microsoft and other platforms, they, they have 
assessments before something goes out the door. Yeah. You won't do it early enough usually. Um, and that, that needs to be built in from the beginning, from the very beginning. Um, and, and then of course we need to put it, build in the safety net of yeah. like, sometimes it's going to go in the wrong direction. So what do we do when that happens? We can't just let it out there in the world. What do we do? I agree. Yeah. yeah. And I think you're to your point because early, early on, like early stages in the development of it, there weren't a lot of diverse thinkers, people, et cetera, who were helping to design it. And you're right. It's an aggregation of what they can find, what that AI tool can find on the internet. Yeah. You know, I, I still think it, it requires, again, this human presence, right? You talk about empathy and it's actually even demonstrating these behaviors that we've been talking about in the last hour, like, okay, when you ask AI, whatever tool it is to produce something for you, don't just take it face value, like actually have some empathy when you're actually reviewing the output, whatever it is. You know, when I think about if it's something that was written, or I think about, you know, mid journeys, fascinating, because you can say design this, but then look at something and go, hmm, they miss something in XYZ culture, right? And so then you have to go back in and um, I think guide it or massage it or supply that information and just not take it face value. So I agree with you. I just wonder going forward, you know, how you can fix that, like how that can be fixed, unless you know about specific tools where the algorithms are already based on diversity. I think that's what a challenge is, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I think the 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 biggest thing is to have a team that is asking that question. To be honest, okay. you need the experts really asking that question on your team from the beginning. You know, let's see, let's play this out for in our heads first. Like, yeah. what happens if? What happens if? What happens if? You know, and 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 really, really consistently ask those questions along the way. You probably need to design some assessments. Okay, at this stage, let's look at the biases that might be coming into play. Let's look at the, the different ways that. Um, our AI is gathering information. Where are the biases there? Where is the inequity there that we can um, design against, right? Yeah. So that you're creating, ultimately, you want to create um, a product that is actively working against the bias. Yes. Right. Because uh, everything is going to be biased. Right. And, and so you need to be actively working against those biases. And that means that does, that means the opposite of don't do anything except just build this thing because we want it out there in the world. Right. Do that responsibly. You have to actively work against the biases that are likely to come into play. Yeah, I love that, too. Having a framework for teams. Again, you're doing work in the tech world and other industries like how do you help these new companies that are now popping up globally to design something for a global, diverse, you know, audience, right? And how do you help teams have a framework of questioning more than anything and actually um, proofing it before it actually goes live? I love that. Um, I know we're coming up to the top of the hour. You've given us so many great tips on how people can, they themselves be allies. Um, but I do want to jump into culture about you. Like I always get into this. So, you know, if you, if I want to like listen and learn about you, Melinda, like what are you loving these days in terms of what you're reading, watching, hearing, wearing, eating, any of those things? Like what is your favorite? 
Well, um, I try to live, eat, breathe, um, walk through life with my values. So I really think about the food that's going into my body and purchasing from local farmers um, and, 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 uh, and sustainable uh, meats and um, humanely raised meats if I eat meat. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I highly encourage everybody to kind of live their values through what they put in their body. Yes. Just what you put on your body. So I, in terms of fashion, fashion is very um, depleting of the world's resources. Yeah. And, um, a lot of human rights violations within it as in, within the industry. It, it needs to be radically transformed and there are some transformers happening. And so I try to, uh, wear things from from those designers. So my pants are Amore Vare, which is a local sustainable Love. Uh, owned um, business. This is Natori, um, Josie Natori. So yeah. um, and uh, Eileen Fisher is another one that has really pushed the industry in a, in a way. Uh, in terms of what I'm watching, or we watch a lot of things. My husband and I <laughs> watch a lot of things. I will say, yeah. just finished the Bear. Um, and I will say, if you like the bear, if you're interested in the bear, also look at Hentified. Okay. So kind of expanding um, who you're, uh, what you're watching. Um, it's another one based in, it's, it's, there's some similarities and everything too. Obviously, Mar Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I love too. Oh my gosh. Yeah, did you watch <laughs> the final season? I did. I mean, she is the epitome of like, you go girl, right? Like you go lady boss, like amazing you know the whole season i'm gonna rewatch the last season but yeah i i watched that too but the bear i just started my husband actually somehow watched all of it but hintified you know that that sounds like a new one too yeah, central Good. la family-owned business um a food business as well oh excellent yeah and then what i'm reading is um this is my uh good friend ritu basin's um book on belonging and oh. finding your own belonging. So I encourage you to read both of these. I love it. And they both have the, I think the universally diverse color orange on yeah. the book, which is amazing. Um, all right. So Melinda, how can people find you? And I see that Amber's on here and she is actually presenting on an all company call tomorrow for pride month. And as she's taken it. copious notes on oh, this conversation. So how can people find you? So what's your shout out? Okay. Um, well, Amber, we also, we, we are, my company, Impovia, has been doing some posts on LGBTQIA plus allyship as well. So go look at our social channels on our LinkedIn, Impovia. Um, search for that. That might help you too. We, we talk about a few different microaggressions and um, things specifically for LGBTQIA plus folks. Um, and I, and, and then if you ever want a resource, please do reach out to me because I do talk and, and, um, and do leadership training around that top topic as well. Um, you can find me, um, you, you can email me at contact at empovia.co.co. And um, you can find me on all the social media platforms. Um, my website is melindabriannaepler.com. Uh, I think that's the, yeah. Right on. We will put that all in the show notes so that everyone can find you. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melinda. This is, I don't know where the hour went. There's so much more that I feel like we can be talking about. And I so appreciate just who you are and how you've come into the space of helping to shape allyship and empathy across industries. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I know everyone tuned in. Please feel to reach out to Melinda. And if you want to stay on, um, I think our next culture cast is tomorrow. So tomorrow with Chris Denson, same time, same place, 11 a.m. And then please follow us on CultureCast or Marie Sandrata on all socials. So LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Substack. I think I'm YouTube. I'm missing all of them. But anyway, anyway, great to see everybody. And Melinda, many thanks to you. So great to spend time with you. Thank you. I appreciate you. And yeah. I love this conversation, second conversation of ours. Yeah. I know. So much fun. Yeah. So if you all are interested, listen to the podcast as well. That's right. Go listen to um, Leading with Empathy and Allyship with Melinda. It'll be amazing. All right. All right, everyone. Be well. I'll see you next time. Take care. Bye. Bye.